Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and if you're wondering about the name, (laughs) I love to listen to true crime while I clean. So because cleaning and true crime are my two loves, I've combined the two. And every week I post a new whole house cleaning motivation video on my YouTube channel, See Elise. And in the corner of the video, I'm in a little bubble telling you about a true crime case that's interesting to me. So cleaning and crime. But for some, the cleaning footage is too distracting. Or some people just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. If you want to check out the video version of today's story, be sure to check out my YouTube channel and you'll find a playlist of all of my cleaning and crime episodes. But if you just came here for the crime and not the cleaning, you're in the right place. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast. Some episodes may be disturbing to some listeners. Be sure to check the show notes for each episode for specific trigger warnings. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Colleen Stan was hitchhiking in Red Bluff, California in 1977. She'd turned away the first two cars that had stopped for her because they didn't feel like they were the right fit. But when a married couple with a baby pulled over and offered Colleen a ride, they seemed safe. But little did she know that Cameron Hooker and his wife Janice were out looking for a girl to abduct to hold hostage in their house as a sex slave. And accepting this ride would begin a horrifying kidnapping ordeal that would last over seven years. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of the girl in the box. On May 19, 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan was hitchhiking along Highway 5 from her home in Eugene, Oregon, to her friend's house in California about 400 miles away because she wanted to surprise her friend for her birthday. She made it to Red Bluff, California, and she was waiting for another car to pull over and take her the rest of the way. She had about 100 miles left. Now it was the 70s, so hitchhiking wasn't uncommon, and Colleen had done it before. She thought she was a pretty good judge of character. She was careful about who she got in a car with, and she had even turned away two cars that afternoon that offered her rides. The first car was full of dudes, and they were like, yeah, baby, we'll take you wherever you want to go. And Colleen was like, mm, mm-mm, no, thank you. I better pass on that one. And the next car was a couple, but they were like, we're not going that far. Well, we can take you like 15 miles or something. But Colleen had a better shot of getting a ride on the busy highway, so she thanked them and waited for the next ride. The next car that stopped was a two-door blue Dodge Colt, and inside were 23-year-old Cameron Hooker and his 19-year-old wife, Janice, who was holding their eight-month-old baby girl. A young family, Colleen's age, with a baby. It just seemed like a very safe option. But it wasn't long into the drive that Colleen started to feel uncomfortable. Colleen kept looking up to the rearview mirror and realized that Cameron, the driver, kept like looking back at her through the rearview mirror and just kept checking her out constantly. And it made her feel incredibly uneasy. But she was like, let it go. Like, it's this nice family with a baby. They're giving you a ride for free. Just like, I'm sure it's fine. Just roll with it. They all made small talk along the drive and eventually they stopped for gas. And Colleen got out of the car to use the bathroom in the gas station. And while she was in the bathroom, she had a very strange experience. She was washing her hands, and out of nowhere, she got a very uneasy feeling, and then she heard a voice very clearly in her head say, jump out the window and run and never look back. And Colleen's washing her hands and looking at herself in the mirror, and she's like, what? This is crazy. They're just a nice family giving you a ride. You're being ridiculous. So she talked herself out of it, walked back to the car, and got in. Now, when they got driving again, Colleen looked over next to her and there was a wooden box on the back seat next to her that wasn't there before. But she decided not to say anything and just pretended it wasn't there. Like, it's just a box. Like, leave it alone. 
Then Cameron and Janice told Colleen that they were planning on stopping at some ice caves along the way and asked her if it was okay with her. But Colleen kind of felt like she didn't have any grounds to be dictating where they were going. Like they were giving her a ride, a hundred mile ride for free. So she was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. That's that's fine. But she hadn't seen any signs along the road that said ice caves this way. But she just kind of trusted that they knew where they were going. They got further into the mountains, away from any people, any cars, any houses. And obviously, Colleen started to feel uneasy again. Then Cameron pulls over and turns off the car and him and Janice and the baby just get out. They just leave Colleen alone in the back seat, And she's like, mm, okay, um, what's the plan? Like, should I get out? Like, I don't see any ice caves. What are we doing? You know? And as she's looking around, she sees out of her window that Janice and the baby had gone over to a stream that was along the road and they just started playing in it. And as she turns her head back to look the other way, she looks just as the door opens and Cameron is jumping into the back seat with a big ass knife and puts it to her throat. Colleen feels instant panic and freezes. And before she knows it, Cameron pulls her arms behind her back and handcuffs her. Colleen was like, holy shit, I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is not happening. He asked her if she was going to do everything he told her, and obviously she said yes. Then Cameron puts this gag over Colleen's head. It kind of wraps around and goes underneath your chin, and then he cinched it around her neck so she couldn't open her mouth or scream or anything. Then he blindfolded her and he laid her down in the back seat of the car. And this is where she found out what that box on the seat was for. It's this wooden box that Cameron had built. It was full of padding, like carpet and fabric, to muffle sounds. It had hinges, a hole that goes around your neck, and it closes over your head and latches. So he puts this thing on Colleen's head and closes it and latches it. And the box weighed 20 pounds. Colleen said it was obviously incredibly claustrophobic and it was really difficult to breathe. He then unwrapped Colleen's sleeping bag from her stuff and he put that over her too. Then Colleen hears Janice and the baby get in the car and she just like sits down in the car and doesn't say anything. So Colleen's like, holy shit. She knew he was going to do this. Cameron drove the car back down the mountain all the way back down to Red Bluff where they started. But they just kept driving around to kill time until it got dark, even stopping for fast food along the way to kill time. So they're just sitting there in the front seat eating cheeseburgers and fries, holding a baby, while Colleen's laying in the back seat with a box on her head, gasping for air and crying. She's terrified. She's panicking, thinking, why are they doing this to me? But worse than that, what's next? They drove to Cameron and Janice's house, and under cover of darkness, he took Colleen out of the back seat, removed the box from her head, and led her, still blindfolded, into the back door of the house, through the house, and down into the basement. Once they were in the basement, he had Colleen step on something. Some sources said it was like an ice box, like a cooler. Then he removed the handcuffs, and he cut off all of Colleen's clothing. Then he put leather wrist cuffs over her wrists, and he hooked those to hooks in the ceiling. Once she was hooked to the ceiling, he kicked the box out from under her feet. So she was just hanging there from her wrists from the ceiling. That had to have been so incredibly painful. Now, obviously, she started screaming. And as soon as she started screaming, Cameron started whipping her. This obviously didn't stop her from screaming. So Cameron yelled at her, just shut up and hang there. So he was whipping her because obviously he liked it, but also as some sort of a form of punishment to get her to stop screaming. So she tries to calm down. She manages to stop screaming and she starts trying to look around the room. She's still blindfolded, but she can kind of see underneath the bottom of the blindfold. And she sees a table off in the corner and it's covered in these open magazines that are BDSM themed. And it's all these pictures of women in bondage. 
and this is so fucking disturbing, but Colleen hears some noises and she tries to look down and she realizes that Cameron and Janice are having sex underneath her while she's hanging from the ceiling. And she's like, oh my God, who are these people? That is the most... Uh, I have no, I have no words. Now, I just want to clarify something really quick because some of the older articles I came across referred to this case as like a BDSM sex slave. And while, yes, there were like BDSM themed magazines in the room, that was something that Cameron was interested in. But what Cameron did to Colleen was not BDSM. BDSM is an umbrella term. It's a composite acronym standing for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadomasochism. But more importantly, it's about trust, rules, and consent. What Cameron did to Colleen was just abduction and torture. You know what I'm saying? I just wanted to make that distinction because I think words are important. You know what I'm saying. But Cameron did not want a willing participant. He didn't want a consenting adult involved in this situation. He actively sought out a non-willing victim. Now, after Cameron and Janice were done, Cameron unhooked Colleen from the ceiling. He put the horrible head box back on her, and then he put her in a bigger box that was a little smaller than a coffin, which he had also built, and he shackled her wrists and her ankles inside of the bigger box. So she's double boxed and still blindfolded and restrained. And then he just left her there all night. She was completely panicking. It was incredibly hard to breathe. And she spent the entire night gasping for air and praying. Uh, Just the most, the most, again, I have no words. Morning came around and she was just completely exhausted and defeated. Cameron came down and took her out of the box, removed the head box, took her over to a table. He laid her on the table and he restrained her wrists and her ankles at the corners of the table and then put the head box back on her and then left again and went to work. After work, he came home, he tortured Colleen, and then he put her back with the head box on back in the coffin box and left her there all night. And Colleen would spend 22 to 23 hours a day in that coffin box every single day. Now, a little backstory on our villains. And I'm really just glossing over this and the entire case. This case is humongous and very complex, but I'm going to do my best to sum up the whole story as best as I can. Now, Cameron and Janice had been together since Janice was 15, a freshman in high school, and he was 19. So Janice described growing up in an emotionally neglectful household, and she felt very ignored by her parents. And now, I don't know if this is actually true, but Janice said that when she was a child, she suffered from epilepsy, but her father, who was deeply religious, felt that she was possessed by demons, so he wanted nothing to do with her. And her mother only gave her negative attention, like to tell her she was doing something wrong or to tell her she was worthless. She never got any positive attention, really, from anybody in her life. So when a 19-year-old guy comes around showing her a ton of affection, love bombing, giving her gifts, showering her with the attention she wasn't getting at home, it seemed kind of nice. Now, Cameron had an interest in bondage from around the age of 16. And at that point, he began collecting BDSM-themed magazines. But by the time he turned 19, he really wanted to act on some of these fantasies that he had. And 15-year-old Janice was a perfect target for him. And Cameron began abusing Janice on their first date. On their first date, he took her into the woods, stripped her of her clothes, and hung her from a tree by her wrists and whipped her. On their first date, when she was a freshman in high school. 
But after Cameron would act out whatever fantasy he wanted to on Janice, he would be incredibly kind, sweet, loving, affectionate, give her gifts, basically rewarding her for doing whatever he wanted, even though she didn't want to do it and never really consented. And no one had ever showed her affection like that before. And this went on almost every day for over a year. And Janice's parents were actually very excited when Cameron came around and asked if he could marry Janice. And they were like, absolutely, take her. So she ended up dropping out of school and marrying Cameron when she was only 16. So there's really no doubt here that Janice was also a victim. She was Cameron's first victim. Now, once Cameron and Janice got married, nothing really changed. He continued abusing and torturing her, but then showering her with attention and affection after. But in 1976, Janice decided she'd had enough. She wanted the torture to stop and she wanted to have a baby. So she told Cameron she wanted to have a baby. And because of this, this violent sexual behavior needed to stop. But Cameron was like, well, if you're not willing to do this for me, I'm going to need to get it somewhere else. But he wasn't interested in any kind of open relationship situation. And Janice didn't want to get a divorce. So Cameron came up with the idea that he should get a sex slave to act out his fantasies with. And shockingly, Janice agreed. Initially, Cameron thought about putting an ad in one of those magazines that he collected, but didn't appeal to him because he didn't want a willing participant. He wanted someone that didn't consent. That that was the exciting part for him. So he decided to kidnap someone and he got to work building a torture chamber in the basement. Initially, the agreement with Janice was that Cameron could engage in sexual activity with his sex slave, but regular intercourse would need to be reserved for Janice. So definitely an interesting arrangement. But eventually, this arrangement would go out the window anyway. But this is the moment. This is the moment where Janice started towing the line between victim and perpetrator. Because she helped Cameron kidnap somebody. Back in Eugene, Oregon, Colleen's friends started to get worried because it had been three days now since they'd heard from her. And they know now that she never made it to her friend's house in California. So her friends start calling her parents. Everyone starts calling around, asking everybody they can think of if they've seen Colleen, if they've heard from her. And by day four, a missing persons report was filed with the police. But days turned into weeks. And when weeks turned into a month, Colleen's parents got tired of, you know, sitting around doing nothing. So they just started driving up and down the route that Colleen was planning to take, looking for anything, any sign of her, stopping at every police station along the way, passing out photos of Colleen and just nothing. She completely vanished into thin air. There was no evidence. There was nothing. Meanwhile, Colleen was just in the hooker's basement. And every night, Cameron would go down to the basement and torture Colleen, suspending her, whipping her, electrocuting her, burning her, or putting her on a homemade medieval stretching rack. And Colleen said that she never once screamed because on that first night when she was abducted, he told her, go ahead and scream. I will cut your vocal cords. I can do it. I've done it before. And she believed him. Why wouldn't she? Every night after he was done torturing her, he would put her back in that terrible coffin box. With the head box on. And she would ask him every night, when are you going to let me go? And every night he would tell her, pretty soon. But as the months went by, she lost hope and quit asking him that. For the first five months, Colleen was kept in that basement, naked, bound, blindfolded. He never took off that blindfold for five months. And he only took her out of that coffin-like box once a day to eat, use the bathroom, and to torture her. Five months in that box for 22 to 23 hours a day, never taking the blindfold off. Like the sensory deprivation is just, uh. 
And she wasn't even given a bath until month four. Four months of not cleaning yourself at all. I just, I, I can't imagine. I can't even begin to imagine any of this. At the five-month mark, Cameron built a little makeshift prison cell under the stairs in the basement. Like, think Harry Potter's bedroom. And there was one single light bulb hanging in the closet, and Cameron began letting her out of the box and removing her blindfold and putting her to work in the little prison cell under the stairs. And it was weird little odd jobs every night. Like, her first night, he gave her a bunch of sacks of walnuts, and he had her cracking open walnuts all night. But Colleen was just happy to be out of the fucking box and have her blindfold off, so she was seeing light for the first time in five months. At the nine-month mark... Cameron came down to the basement and brought Colleen a contract. And he told her that he was part of a very powerful underground slave trading outfit known as The Company. He told her to read and sign this contract, agreeing to be his slave for life. It stated that she was never allowed to wear undergarments, to preserve her body for his exclusive use, and to fulfill his every desire. Colleen was like, well, what the fuck? What if I don't sign it? And he told her, if you don't sign it, I'll make you wish you had. And she had been tortured every night for nine months at this point, so of course she believed him. And what choice did she have? She signed it. Her new contractual name was K Powers, like the letter K. And Cameron's new contractual name was Michael Powers, which he said was the name the company knew him as. Now that she'd signed the contract, she was given a nightgown to wear, and she was allowed upstairs to do chores. She had very strict rules. She had to keep her head down. She couldn't look at Cameron and Janice. She had to refer to Cameron as sir or master and to refer to Janice as ma'am. She was only to speak when spoken to. She wore a dog collar that Cameron had made her. And she just did everything she was told to do because she was just trying to avoid worsening the torture. Cameron also constantly threatened her with the company, this very powerful organization that he was a part of. And he told her if she ran away, the company would track her down very easily and they would catch her, nail her hands to a beam and hang her there for days as punishment. He said the company would stop at nothing to find her and if they couldn't find her right away, they would kill her family. And Janice was in on the threats too. Once she told Colleen, oh, if you step foot out that front door, you may as well have put a gun to your head and pulled the trigger. The company is always watching. But now that Colleen was upstairs, Janice had to see and interact with her husband's sex slave. And she did not like that. Colleen said that from day one, Janice did not like her being there. She was very jealous and treated her as though she was the other woman. Like as if Colleen wanted to be there. A month after Colleen was allowed upstairs, suddenly Cameron blindfolded her and carried her upstairs to Janice and Cameron's bedroom. He restrained her in the bed and everyone hopped in. So Cameron was on one side, Janice on the other. And this, almost a year after she was first abducted, was the first time that Cameron raped Colleen with Janice right there next to them. I guess she thought maybe she would find it exciting, but she didn't. And after it was all said and done, Janice was really upset about it. Like Cameron had broken their agreement or something. So Janice told him like, never mind. I didn't like that. Like, don't ever do that again. No, back to the way it was. But after this assault, the floodgates were open and Cameron began regularly raping Colleen. But he was always careful to use protection and always careful to do it when Janice wasn't home. So he kept it a secret from Janice. So on top of everything that Colleen was already suffering with, now she has to deal with this on a regular basis too. That's, that's fucking great. At the 11 month mark, Colleen was so broken down, she completely gave up on the idea of running away. 
because she was afraid that the company was going to track her down and kill her or kill her family. So she just accepted that she was going to die here in this house. Then Cameron moved the family a couple miles outside of town to a trailer on more land in April 1978. Some sources say that they think Cameron moved them because he wanted more privacy. It was on more land. But another source I read said that they were actually renting that house. So they think Cameron was probably afraid of a landlord dropping by. You know what I mean? Other sources said they were having money troubles. So he went to a cheaper house. I don't know. But either way, they moved to a trailer. Now, in this trailer, there was no basement to keep Colleen. So Cameron augmented the couple's waterbed to house the coffin-like box underneath the bed frame. He changed the coffin box and built this customized ventilated box underneath the waterbed. And that was Colleen's home with Cameron and Janice sleeping on top of her. There was a little fan blowing air into the box and there was a bedpan. And Colleen spent all day and most of the night in the box under the bed, and she was only let out for a couple of hours in the middle of the night for Cameron to torture her and for her to do chores. Colleen did say that she could hear Cameron doing torturous things to Janice. I mean, they were directly above her. But Janice was under the impression that once Cameron got a sex slave, he would never torture her again. But that was not the case. Eventually, Janice did become pregnant with their second child. <laughs> just, just a reminder, there's kids in this house. And in September 1978, Janice had a home birth on the waterbed with Colleen underneath. Cameron let Colleen out of the box to see the baby and then put her back in. From April 1979 to January 1980, Janice worked nights. So Cameron would let Colleen out of the box to cook him dinner and clean up the dishes. Over time, Cameron started letting Colleen out of the box more and more. She would do housework, obviously, and she even started taking care of the kids. In June 1980, Janice got a day job. And so Colleen would watch the kids while Cameron and Janice were at work. Like she was alone in the house babysitting the kids. And the kids just thought she was Kay the babysitter. And then at night, Colleen began sleeping in the back bathroom chained to the toilet. They even started letting Colleen go for short jogs in the neighborhood by herself. And they let her outside to work in the garden. But she was so broken down and so terrified of the company, she never acted out and she never tried to escape. The few people that saw Colleen with the hookers were told that she was the live-in babysitter named Kay. And no one really suspected anything different. Not even the two daughters. So that was the arrangement until February 1981, when suddenly Cameron was like, you know what? I want to put Colleen back in the box at night. So he had Janice quit her day job, and this is four years, four years into Colleen's captivity, by the way. And Cameron told Colleen something amazing had happened. The company had approved a very rare family visit, and Colleen was going to get to go visit her family for 24 hours. He let her call home and let them know that she was coming. Then a week before the visit, Cameron had Colleen go to the neighbors and to the girls, his daughters, and tell everyone she was moving away and she was no longer going to be the kid's babysitter. And then he drove her to the bus station, making it look like he was dropping her off. But instead, he just turned around and smuggled her back into the house and put her in the box under the bed. So now Cameron and Janice were the only ones that knew that Colleen was still in the house. Also, before he took Colleen to visit her family, he needed to test her obedience. So Cameron handed Colleen a gun and told her, put it in your mouth and pull the trigger. And she did it. But the gun was empty. And he was like, that was a test. And you passed. <gasps> oh, God. 
A few days later, in March 1981, Cameron fucking took Colleen to see her family. Colleen thinks it was a very big power trip for him. He warned her that the company would be monitoring the visit, that they had her father's house bugged, and they could hear and see everything. While they were on their way, he pulled off in Sacramento at company headquarters, and he pulled up to these random office buildings, and he told her, the company needs to administer a lie detector test before you can go see your family. And Colleen was like super nervous about it, and Cameron left her alone in the car and was like, I need to go in first. And he went into these random office buildings and hung out for a while, and then he came back out a while later, and he told her, the company has decided to waive the testing requirement. Congratulations. When they pulled up to Colleen's father's house, the whole family was waiting outside for her because it was like they hadn't seen her in four years. They thought she was either dead or she joined a cult or something. Colleen introduced Cameron as her fiance, Michael. And when Colleen's sister saw her, she was totally shocked because Colleen was very, very thin because Cameron barely freaking fed her. Her hair was not done and Colleen always had her hair done and all of her clothes were like handmade clothes and that was not how Colleen dressed at all. And this fiance that brought her, her sister described him as a bookworm and said Colleen never dated guys that looked like him. She's had a super weird feeling, but also everyone was just super excited to see her. The family said that Cameron slash Michael seemed super normal. He didn't stay very long. He just like said, hey, nice to meet you. Okay, have a great time. And he left her there. He left her with her family for 24 hours. They spent the whole day catching up on everything she'd missed. Now, as soon as Colleen had gone missing, her parents actually kind of assumed that she had joined a cult. Like it was the 70s. It kind of seemed like that's something she may have done. And now seeing her now, they were like, oh, yeah, I, I think I think she joined a cult. Like they just got that vibe. So they didn't want to push her too hard because they were afraid if they like really questioned her, like, where have you been? What's going on? They would scare her off and they would never see her again. Colleen just wanted to spill everything, but she really believed that the company had the house bugged and they could hear everything. Cameron left her there overnight and he came back to pick her up the next day. And before they left, Cameron and Colleen posed for a photo together. And that photo, man, that it haunts me because it's like, when you see that picture, you would never know. Like they look like a happy couple in love posing for a picture. It's, it's very disturbing. When Cameron and Colleen got home, home, Janice wasn't there. So Cameron raped Colleen and put her in the under the bed box. After that family visit, Cameron went back to the schedule of keeping Colleen in the under the bed box for 23 hours a day, only taking her out to torture her and have her do chores. The daughters and the neighbors had no idea that Colleen was still in the house. They all thought that she like got on a bus and left back in February. And Colleen remained in that box from March 1981 to May 1984, with a small break in 1983 when Cameron forced her to help him build a dungeon under the shed in the backyard. Once it was finished enough for Colleen to go out in the under the shed dungeon, he moved her out there. But one night it started raining really hard and the dungeon started filling with water. And Janice ended up going out and getting Colleen and bringing her to the under the bed box so she wouldn't drown. But a few weeks later, after it had dried out sufficiently, Cameron put her back out in the dungeon. Until a cousin that was over playing with the daughters was caught looking in the hole that led to the dungeon. And Janice and Cameron were like, uh-oh, we can't risk a kid like looking in there and seeing Colleen. So they abandoned the dungeon for now and moved her back 
to the box. In 1984, after seven and a half years of captivity, Colleen was 27 years old, and the dynamic between Colleen and Janice shifted. You see, Cameron had told Janice that he wanted to marry Colleen and have two wives. He also admitted to Janice that he had been having intercourse with Colleen and that he had been lying to her about it. He also told her that he was building that dungeon in the backyard because now he'd have room for as many as four slaves. Janice was not happy about any of that. So suddenly, Janice started letting Colleen out of the box. They were spending time reading the Bible together. She even brought Colleen outside and showed the neighbors and the kids and said, look, Kay the babysitter's back. So she forced Cameron's hand and he had to let her start watching the kids again and go outside again. Then Cameron started letting Colleen sleep on the living room floor at night instead of the box. Colleen and Janice even started going to church together. And Colleen even got a job cleaning at a motel nearby. And mentally, Janice was really struggling. All this Bible reading was leading her to believe that maybe what they were doing with Colleen was wrong and maybe she was going to hell. And she was also realizing that Cameron had been twisting the Bible with Janice to make her believe that what they were doing was okay. So Janice decided to reach out to her pastor at the church. Now, she didn't tell him the whole story. She didn't tell him the real story. She spun it more like a love triangle, like they had another live-in woman. And she asked her pastor for advice. And he was like, God would not approve. So Janice was like, oh, well, that's my sign, I guess. So Janice decided, that's it. I'm going to let Colleen go. I'm going to release her. So Janice ran to where Colleen works at the motel, busted into where she was cleaning, and she said, sit down. I have something to tell you. The company is not real. Cameron lied about it, and I went along with it, and the past seven and a half years of your life have been a lie. Colleen could not believe that she had believed this lie for this many years. And she also couldn't believe how Janice let it go on for as long as it did. She just burst into tears and broke down. The next day on August 10th, 1984, Colleen called her dad and said, I need you to wire me $100 so I can get a bus ticket. I'm coming home. And her dad immediately was like, are you sure that's enough? I will, I will wire you any amount. (laughs) Oh, that makes me tear up. He was just so excited just to get her back. He's like, "I I will wire you any amount just to get you back. She got her bus ticket. And just before she got on the bus, she called Cameron from a payphone and told him, I know that you lied to me about the company. You are no longer in control of my life. I am in control of my life and I'm leaving and there's nothing you can do about it. And Colleen said that he broke down and bawled like a baby. Colleen said the joy and relief that washed over her on that bus was just overwhelming. Like she was like looking around the bus, like surely everyone on this bus can see that I'm just like beaming. So physically, yes, she was free. But mentally, after everything that she just went through, she was starting on a very long road to recovery. When Colleen got to her father's, she told her family that she had been abducted and held captive. But that was it. No details, no names, and she wasn't going to go to the police. She just wanted to get on with her life and be with her family and put it all behind her. And it wouldn't end up being Colleen or her family that called the police. It was Janice. Colleen had continued talking with Janice on the phone after she escaped. And Janice had begged her not to go to the police and to give Cameron a chance to prove that he could change because he had promised Janice that he would. And Colleen agreed. Colleen said that she just felt incredibly damaged. She just felt damaged and she suffered from severe depression and anxiety. But she was 
moving on. She was getting some therapy. She got a job. She was catching up with her family and friends. She was going to church regularly. And she was going to church regularly and building a community. And after three months of freedom, Colleen suddenly got a call from Janice that said, there are some people coming over to your house and you need to talk to them. And then she hung up. Next thing she knew, a bunch of cops showed up at her door to talk to her about Cameron Hooker. Now, Janice had gone to her pastor at the church to talk to him about the love triangle, remember? But after Colleen left, that incredible guilt she felt did not magically disappear. So she ended up going back to the pastor again. And this time, she spilled. She spilled everything. That poor pastor. Like, oh my God. And she was like, what should I do? What do you think? And he was like, wow, yeah, that that's a lot. Um, you're going to need to go to the cops right now, or I will. Okay. So Janice packed up the kids and left Cameron for good. And then she called the police and she told them that Cameron had abducted two women, one that he had held for almost eight years and one that he had killed. Janice was then interviewed by the police and she told them all about Colleen. And at first they didn't believe her because it's like, let's be honest, it doesn't sound real. But then she told the police that 16 months prior to abducting Colleen, they had abducted another young hitchhiker that Janice referred to as Marliz. She said that Cameron had done pretty much the same things when they abducted Marliz. He handcuffed her, put the box on her head, brought her back to Red Bluff into the basement. But once he had her in the basement, he had a plan that he was going to cut her vocal cords so she couldn't scream. But he didn't know what he was doing and he messed it up. He ended up deciding to just kill her. Janice said that she then went down to the basement and helped him roll Marliz into a carpet or a blanket. And then they brought her up to the car and Cameron disposed of the body off of Highway 44. There was a girl that went missing on January 31st, 1976, which lined up with Janice's timeline. And this girl was reported missing to the Chico Police Department. And her name was Marie Elizabeth Spanicky. And she went by Marliz. It was like a combo of Marie and Elizabeth. And she had never been found. So the police were like, oh, shit, I think this might be true. Janice said that after they killed Marlies, that's why they went out looking for a replacement. And that's why they abducted Colleen. So Janice was granted immunity in exchange for helping them find Marlies' body and to testify against Cameron at trial. And they took Janice out several times trying to find Marlies' burial site, but they never did find her body. And with no body, all they had was Janice. And she was shaky at best. They needed Colleen. So when the police got to Colleen's house, she calmly confirmed everything that Janice had told them. And the cops asked her, were there any other sex slaves? And Colleen told them that inside the under the bed box, there was a picture. And she saw it every time she crawled into that box. It was like a high school portrait, like a school photo. And she described the girl in great detail. And they realized, holy shit, she's describing Marlies. So they did keep on looking for Marlies' body, but they had enough to arrest Cameron for Colleen's abduction. So they arrested him on November 18th, 1984. When they searched his house, they found the head box, the under the bed box, the medieval torture rack, and they also found the dungeon under the shed. And it looked as though he was getting ready to abduct another girl. Cameron was charged with eight felony charges of kidnapping, false imprisonment, rape, sodomy, and forced oral copulation. And his bail was set at half a million dollars. For his defense, Cameron basically said, okay, yeah, I did kidnap Colleen and hold her for a little while. But then after a short time, I let her go. But she had grown to like it. So she decided to stay of her own free will. And after that, it was just a relationship. 
So that means the statute of limitations is up. So that means you can't find me guilty. Also, I only kidnapped her in the first place because I saw her using drugs. And I was just trying to save her from drugs. Shut up. Basically, the defense used all those times that Colleen could have physically gotten away from him. Like how she had a job, how she went jogging, especially that time where she stayed with her family for 24 hours and posed for that picture. They used all those examples to say that she wanted to be there. If she didn't, she would have left. Colleen even sent Cameron a card after she escaped and it said, I might be crazy, but I love you the way you are. So defense used that against her too. Colleen felt like she was the one that was on trial. The prosecution tried to show how she was tortured, how she was broken down, how she feared the company, feared for her family's safety, and how she was completely under the control of Cameron. The prosecution brought all the shit that Cameron had built into the courtroom, like the head box, the entire waterbed frame with the under the bed box in it, and the stretching rack, all of it in the courtroom. And that coffin box, they left in the courtroom through the entire trial, just so that the jury could sit and stare at it and see how small and horrible it was. They even showed the jury a picture of Colleen suspended naked from the ceiling to show how much she was tortured while she was there. Because of course Cameron took pictures. So the prosecution had the job of explaining why she didn't leave. Janice got on the stand and told the jury that she was tortured by Cameron and that she only agreed to the sex slave arrangement so that he would stop torturing her. Janice also told the jury that Cameron had suspended her by her wrists while she was pregnant to test out his basement torture room before he got Colleen. Cameron got on the stand and said, this is just a case of two bickering and jealous women plotting against him. He also said that Janice and Colleen had begun a relationship with each other. So they were just conspiring against him to get him out of the relationship so that they could be together. Okay. But prosecution questioned a forensic psychologist who spoke at length about Stockholm Syndrome, which in the simplest of terms is basically when you fall in love with your captor. It's a survival mechanism. And he carefully explained how Stockholm Syndrome was most likely the reason why Colleen never left. Why she didn't run, why she said she loved him, why she sent that card, and so on. Ultimately, Cameron Hooker was found guilty and sentenced to 104 years in prison. Marie Elizabeth Spanicky's body was never found, and Cameron, nor anyone else, has ever been charged with her murder. After the trial, Colleen began seeing that forensic psychologist from the trial that talked about Stockholm Syndrome, and he told her, it doesn't matter what you said or did while you were being held captive. You did everything right. Because you're alive. You survived. And Colleen said that just hearing somebody say those words out loud was incredibly healing and just relieved her of so much guilt. Colleen moved on with her life and she has a family. She has struggled with maintaining healthy relationships. She's on her fourth marriage, but she says her fourth husband is wonderful. But it's difficult to explain to someone like, yeah, I was held as a sex slave for over seven years and I'm still dealing with that trauma to this day. Are you okay with that? Like, it's very complicated. Colleen also has chronic pain. She's on pain medications. She sustained damage to her spine. She had to have shoulder surgery. But she has moved on with her life, and she even helped found a foundation that helps house abused women. Cameron Hooker was up for parole in 2015, and Colleen spoke at his parole hearing, but he was denied parole. And he wasn't supposed to be eligible for parole for another 15 years. But because of changes to California sentencing laws, his sentence was reduced. And then in 2020, due to the state's efforts to reduce inmate populations due to COVID, Cameron Hooker was eligible for parole again. 
But District Attorney Matt Roger has been fighting to label Cameron Hooker as a sexually violent predator, or SVP. Cameron was sent to Coalinga State Hospital for treatment while awaiting his trials. And after a bunch of COVID delays, there was a probable cause hearing in 2022, and they decided to go forward with trial. And then there was supposed to be a trial date setting hearing in February 2023, but Cameron Hooker's lawyer got COVID, so it was delayed again to March 27th, 2023, so not that long ago. And Cameron Hooker's trial has been set for October 2023. If he's declared an SVP, he will be sent back to the state hospital to receive treatment until he is rehabilitated. But the DA says that typically can take anywhere between 10 and 20 years, and he's already 69 at this point. But if he is not deemed an SVP, he would be eligible for parole, and he could be released this year. But he could still be denied for parole. So it's very up in the air at this moment. But there's a chance that he'll get out this year. And if you're wondering what happened to Janice, we don't know, because she was granted a new identity. And that is the story of Colleen Stan, the girl in the box. Holy shit. I'm so sorry. That is a heavy one. Wow, what do you think? This case is huge, huge. And honestly, I only hit the high spots. In my description box, I will leave a bunch of podcasts and books and documentaries if you want to dig deeper into this case. And the prosecutor in Cameron Hooker's trial actually wrote a book about this case called The Perfect Victim. So if you're looking for every detail, that's where you need to go. Leave me a comment and let me know what you think about this case. And let me know if you have any recommendations for a case you want me to cover on Cleaning and Crime. Thank you for listening to Cleaning and Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube or TikTok or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C. Elise, S-E-E-E-L-I-S-E. If you have any questions or any case ideas that you'd like to share, email me at cleanclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions, and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes. All parties described are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time.